G'day, welcome to the Fasting Highway podcast. I'm Graham Curry, your host from Perth, Australia. I lost 60 kilos or 132 pounds living an intermittent fasting lifestyle, and I successfully maintained that weight loss now, coming up two years. I wanted to bring this series of podcasts to you to give you an insight into what it's like to living an intermittent fasting lifestyle. I'm also the author of the book, The Fasting Highway, which is a story of my journey overcoming chronic addiction to fast food and sugar and taking that walk from morbid obesity to normality. So sit back here with us on the Fasting Highway in the next few weeks and listen to some inspiring guests and some experts in the intermittent fasting community. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the show. G'day and welcome to the Fasting Highway podcast. And this is episode 48. So today, I'm delighted to be joined by Shana Hassan, who is the author of Fast to Heal and the creator of the Nutritional Peace Program. And Shana worked as a nutrition therapist for some 15 years in conventional medicine prior to her son falling ill with a severe and chronic digestive order in 2016. Through relentless research and trial and error, she healed her son using a conventional therapy. Shana gained extensive knowledge in holistic health and natural healing approaches, including a hormonal key to burning fat rather than storing it by using intermittent fasting and clean eating. So here she is to tell us all about her journey and also this inspiring story. Welcome. Oh, g'day, Shana, and welcome to the Fasting Highway, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Graham. It's so great to be here. Oh, fantastic to have you here. Um, you're somebody I follow, and it's great to have somebody of your expertise here. So, Shana, what I thought we might do is just start with a bit of your backstory about yourself and sort of what led you up to your interesting uh, interest in fasting itself. Sure. I'm a registered dietitian, and I've been in the health and wellness field for about 20 years, well, over 20 years now, um, over in the United States. I primarily have lived and worked in Wisconsin, the the north central part of the United States. And um, for the first 15 years or so, I gave people the traditional guidelines of, you know, eating a lot of grains and eating um, all the time, eating throughout the day, at least three meals and snacks in between. And um, not a lot of my clients saw progress. And I found that very frustrating. And I myself, I've never had a huge struggle with weight. I had, um, I was definitely bigger than I am now in my college years, as you can imagine, because that was when the partying (laughs) and the late night eating and all of that was, was happening. Um, but I did have a lot of struggles with, um, digestive issues. I was bloated almost every day. Um, I had, so um, I had I struggled with plantar fasciitis off and on for many years. Um, I also had canker sores or ulcers in my mouth all the time. So I had some strange health issues myself, and um, just generally didn't feel that great because I was always had some digestive stress. And then in 2016, my middle son, who is now 15, we have three kids. He started to have some major um, digestive issues. He he um, went from 
being very well, very healthy kid and never having any food sensitivities or issues to having um, severe diarrhea and, and weakness and weight loss all when he was 10 years old, it just kind of came out of the blue. Um, so that went on for three months and we finally got a diagnosis. And in that time, I, you know, we started to research digestive issues and, you know, we were doing all kinds of tests and stool samples and trying to figure out what was going wrong because he just wasn't getting any better. Um, and finally he was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. And, um, we were told it was an autoimmune disorder and he would have it lifelong. He would always be on medications. And the day that he was diagnosed, um, he had had a colonoscopy and his pediatric gastroenterologist pulled my husband and I into a small room, like a little conference room and told us of the diagnosis. And by that time we had done enough research to know like that was kind of the worst thing that he could be diagnosed with that or Crohn's disease. Um, so, I mean, we were, we were prepared, but still shocked. And I just remember him telling me, um, nutrition has absolutely no, no bearing on this disease, whatever he eats, it, it's not going to help or harm him. Um, there's medications and we'll start with the the, the bottom tier of medications and keep progressing until we find what works for him. And um, just know that a, a pretty high percentage of people with ulcerative colitis will lose their colons at some point in their lifetime. And we were just shocked. And then he handed us a list of, because I asked, I'm like, well, there's got to be a, a certain food list that will be helpful. And he gave us a list of um, very very ultra processed, highly inflammatory foods, um, such as, you know, white bread and white crackers and very low fiber, um, ultra processed food list to follow. Um, and we basically left in shock. And, and from that point forward, I mean, I had, I had started to have some doubts about the standard, um, nutritional guidelines because, in for 15 years, I just had people get sicker and weight cycle more than I was helping anybody. And I worked in outpatient nutrition and I worked as a health coach for um, employees, for employee health. And I worked in a large hospital system and we had, you know, we had various programs that we promoted. A lot of them were low fat, um, high fiber Hot, lot, lots and lots of plant food diets. And we just didn't see a lot of progress. So I had had, had, to, had started to have some doubts. And um, once my son got very ill, I just did a very deep dive into natural health and trying to find the root cause of his illness. And so I was researching and listening to information about my gosh, like metals and fungus and molds and um, parasites and diets and chemicals and, you know, our water supply and glyphosate and vaccines and anything that could have led to him being ill. Um, so 
I actually ended up leaving the nutrition field for like three years. And then we found a treatment that got him better. And after that, um, I had done so much research with weight loss too. And I just had come across intermittent fasting and a lot of the health professionals, natural health professionals that I was following were talking about intermittent fasting. And when I first started hearing about it, I I would honestly just cringe. I'd be like, oh gosh, this topic again. (laughs) Like we're going to talk about not eating breakfast and skipping meals and how can that be healthy? And um, I just, I couldn't really wrap my head around intermittent fasting because it was so different from what I taught people. You know, I've been teaching people to eat within an hour or two of you getting up and eating snacks throughout the day and making sure you get protein in the afternoon and, and all of the things, but obviously they didn't work. Um, so I was at a, a small gastro clinic working at a very, very small um, gastro or gastric health, digestive health clinic at the time. And I was asked to put together a weight loss program And at first I was like, oh man, like I just haven't seen a lot of success with clients and, you know, it's been 20 years now, um, but I'll try it. You know, I'll try it with, with the new information that I found because I started to understand the hormones and I had read the obesity code and I was just dumbstruck and dumbfounded with the information in there. And I thought, why wasn't I taught this, but I want to implement it on a small group and see what happens. Um, so I did a pilot study of about 20, 20 of our patients, and and I we implemented intermittent fasting and clean eating and higher fat eating, and they just did phenomenal. I, I, I couldn't believe it. They would come in for their appointments. It was only a 12-week program, and all of these non-scale victories that I was not, like, and keep in mind, so I think this was 2018 that I started the study or the pilot study. I was not expecting <laughs> this progress. And by this time, I had started intermittent fasting myself as well because I thought, well, I'm not going to tell these people to do something that I have no experience with. So I had been intermittent fasting for several months at that time. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't super, um, I don't want to say compliant, but I wasn't, I would just kind of do it on and off. I wasn't a day-to-day fast for me. Um but they started coming in and not only were they seeing weight loss, but they were sleeping better and binge eating disorders that they've been struggling with for 20 years. They're like, Hey, I don't, I don't binge eat anymore. And I'd be like, uh, I didn't know you were a binge eater. <laughs> They'd be like, well, I didn't want to tell you at first because I was embarrassed, but now I don't do it anymore. And just, I, I couldn't believe it. So I actually started, um, people on the people outside of the clinic started asking me if I would coach them on the side. Um, so I started put, to put together some handouts for them and just some, some written materials. And then I ended up having to leave my position at the digestive health clinic because it was a conflict of interest. But there was so much I wanted to share with people beyond just the handouts that, and I wanted to share my personal story that I actually started to write a book and that's that's how my book came about. And um, a year after I left the digestive health clinic, my whole entire world had changed um, for the better. I mean, I'm I'm so excited about the message that I share and what I teach people now. 
And I have seen more healing in the last year with the clients that I've worked at that I saw in 20 years doing the standard guidelines. So yeah, it's been a roller coaster of a year, but an amazing year. And I'm so happy that I found intermittent fasting and a different way of life. And I can use it as a nutrition therapy tool. Wow, that's fantastic, Shana. So tell me, these people in the clinic, <clears throat> when you introduce them to intermittent fasting, what sort of protocols were they doing at the time? So most of them who had come in hadn't really heard of it, or if they had heard of it, they had never really implemented it. But most of them had done the low-fat, um, calorie-restrictive type diets, I did have one client, a male, who hadn't really done any sort of weight loss protocols before, but he was on prednisone, um, the steroid prednisone for some medical purposes, and he just really needed to get the weight off, and the intermittent fasting worked beautifully for him. But most of them were, you know, women in their probably 40s, anywhere from in their 40s to in their 70s, who had weight cycled for decades and we're just so fed up with with calorie counting and restrictive eating that they were like hey you know I can wrap my head around this and I can embrace this and um yeah they were they just did wonderfully I don't want to pick on any one one um company but most of them had done Weight Watchers several times, if not many times, or were life members, but we're still struggling. So yeah, I would say most of them were doing some sort of low calorie, low fat type um, weight loss program prior to coming to see me. And how have they gone since? Have you kept in touch with them? Have they continued with the fasting and have they get down to an ideal weight? Yeah, I do have some in my group, um, my support group that I have. And like I said, this was at the clinic that I then had to leave work at, but a couple of them followed me and wanted to follow, you know, keep, keep in touch and follow up with me. Um, and the ones who have kept going with the protocol have, have, you know, kept their weight off and done very, very well. Um, you know, we all slip into old habits from time, time and time again, but for the most part, if they've kept going with the fasting they've done very well yes that's great so when they came to the clinic and when you first were introduced to intermittent fasting through the books by dr fung and that sort of thing and i i, I know in your bio you said you mentioned you read a bit about jen stevens mm-hmm. as well and her work and um how about the clean fast shana was that something that you were implementing at that time I definitely was. And I had read Delay, Don't Deny along with the Obesity Code just to get a couple of different perspectives. And those were the two books that at that time were um, probably the most popular and that I was um, exposed to. So I did, I did suggest the clean fast and taught that um, from the get go. And, um, the program that we were doing, um, I wouldn't say it was, it was just all clean eating. It was, you know, I, I wasn't completely focused on, um, lower carb at that point or higher fat. A little, I mean, we did a little bit of that, but it was a lot of clean eating and getting the chemicals out. So the clean fasting just made sense. Yeah. So just where you come and sitting out there listening to this podcast, we have quite a few of them 
Shana, can you just explain why the clean fast is so important? Yeah, I have a lot of people. I would say, I would say for people who come and see me and haven't done intermittent fasting before, it, the clean fast is the toughest if they're coffee drinkers and they put cream and sugar in their coffee. And some of them have tried intermittent fasting, but they can't understand why it's not helping or it's not working for them. And then we go back and they're like, oh yeah, I do put cream and sugar in my coffee. Um, but um, yeah, so we, we definitely go over that. And I just explained, there's a whole um, part in my book about clean fasting too. And I just explained, I'm like, it's super important that you do a clean fast for at least a month and, you know, get all chemicals out, get all artificial sweeteners that, um, so even if they're not, they're no calorie, they might still be causing an, um, an insulin spike, or you might be releasing insulin because the body thinks there's something sweet on the way and it needs to digest food. Um, so we, we talk a lot about that. And once they get that first week under their belt, it, they seem to be fine. And then once they've gone a month with the clean facets, you know, they don't really want to go back to anything else. But I do say like, if you really, really miss your stevia or you really miss, um, some kind of sweetener, either wait till your window and butt it up with your meal or, you know, there are some people who it just doesn't seem to affect their fast, but, um, you know, give it at least a month and then try it. And if you have any kind of hunger or if your fasts are any harder, then definitely you want to keep it out. So that's, that's kind of the advice I give people. And same with teas. Like I drink, I know for me, I drink hot, hot cinnamon tea during my fast. I, that and water, those, those are the only things I drink. Um, and for me, I know it actually helps with my appetite, but the next person it might, you know, might be completely different. So it's really, really important to go for at least a month with the clean fast to make sure you know how it feels and, um, how it would feel differently if you did put something else into your fast. Yeah. My sort of opinion is that you're either fasting or you're not and um, that's why I sort of advocate the clean fast and mm-hmm. always say to people, give it your every chance to work and right. give yourself enough time and keep that insulin low and so forth. But I just want to talk about your education around nutrition and those sort of moments when you sort of started questioning the traditional methods. That must have been quite hard for you given the fact that you'd spent so many years at um, college and that sort of thing learning that. Yeah, and it was just so indoctrinated into all of our education systems. And now I look back and I can see signs. And, you know, I'm not here to slam the American um, diet. Well, it used to be called, it's now called the the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I'm not here to slam them or any but uh, that, but I, I do look back and look at all the sponsorship that's happened, um, where the nutritional guidelines actually came from. Um, and so once I started questioning what was working, then it's like, well, then I started to look at where the nutritional guidelines came from and why. And then I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. Like there's, there's money behind this. There's big food corporations behind this. Um, I'm just going to, you know, I, I kind of always use myself as <laughs> um, a little bit of a science experiment. I'm like, okay, well, if I'm feeling better taking 
X, Y, and Z out, then I bet a lot of my clients will too. Um, but it was, it was really difficult, um, to admit that, you know, what, what I've been telling people for almost two decades is almost the opposite of what actually I've now find to heal people. Um, but you know, you just got to say, and I think this is where a lot of the, the, um, education and, um, the governing bodies around nutrition and dietetics, if we can just say, Hey, you know, we made, we made a mistake like this, this is not the best way to treat chronic disease. Um, and admitting that, that maybe the guidelines aren't made for everybody. <laughs> um, I think if we can do that and that's what I did. I'm like, you know what? I was wrong. I, I, I told people things for almost two decades that didn't really get them well, or maybe a couple of people, but the vast majority, um, they're going to do better with different guidelines. And I think, um, once we, we give, once we put everybody under the same umbrella and say, you know what, the same nutrition is going to work for every single person, we, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. And that's where I think the standard guidelines just fail us because everybody's so different and everybody tolerates different foods. Um, but it was, it, it, it was, it was tough to come to that realization. And, I remember when I was reading Dr. Fung's book, I was just, I was mad. Like I was just, my jaw would just hang open. I'm like, well, this makes perfect sense. Like no wonder why my clients and a lot of people aren't getting well because we're eating all the time and eating, like it just doesn't make sense for obesity and metabolic disease. Um, so yeah, there was that, there was that moment of anger and um, disbelief. And then, then there was a realization like, okay, well, what am I going to do about it now? Like, okay, now I have to get the correct message out to people. Let's, let's write a book. Let's get as many people under the, the, the correct science that we can, so they can, you know, just put our best foot forward and go from here and heal. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, um, I think you're very brave, Shana, and I can imagine that probably caused a bit of flux amongst your colleagues and fellow nutritionists and that sort of thing that may not have agreed with what you sort of found. Would, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I got a lot of mixed reviews, actually. And the colleagues that I sent my book, I sent the digital version of my book prior to its release to many dietitians, And most of them were super receptive to it. They're they just, their feedback was, thank you for sending me this because I am looking for new tools for my clients because what we're doing isn't working. Like they're, you know, 15 years later, they're still on their diabetes medications or they're, they keep having to have more insulin or up their meds or they still gain weight despite the compliance that, you know, they are compliant with what we're teaching. I can see it in their food log. I can see it in um, their glucose meters or, or whatever it is. So most of the dietitians were very happy about it. They're like, wow, you know, like this is eye opening and it makes sense. And thank you because now I can teach my clients. Um, but the, the, the hard part is if you're practicing in a medical institution, like say you're a diabetes educator, you have to teach what the guidelines say. Like I don't work in the standard 
I don't, I, I'm on my own. I have my own business now. I see my own clients. So I don't have to teach the, the guidelines um, that we're told that we have to teach because I, I'm independent. But, you know, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because if you're a certified diabetes educator, you're supposed to teach what, what the guidelines from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics are. So, so it's a challenge because, but, but at the same time, I do see some change happening um, with continuing education. I actually was really encouraged that there are some books and continuing ed um, resources available now that are using intermittent fasting as a nutrition therapy. So I, I found that to be really encouraging, but I think it's a very slow process at the same time. But, you know, dietitians and most health professionals, we just want to help people. We just want to help people understand nutrition and, and understand how to heal heal the bodies. We've just been misled. So um, the diet, like I said, the dietitians that I was in contact with, there was only one who thought, oh, I don't think this is going to work for my clients. And that was because she worked with disordered eating clients. And that's not a good population <laughs> to, to have intermittent fasting, um, implemented. So, but the vast majority were very receptive to it. And I was really happy about that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I just had a question around, and we certainly don't want to demonize anybody in their profession. I mean, nutritionists and dietitians play a massive part in helping people out there. And I know 99.99% of them are actually trying to do that. Mm-hmm. But I was in hospital this week, right? And yeah. in the morning, they bought me breakfast. And I was a ex-sugar addict, as you know. And right. I'm able to look at sugar content fairly quickly now and add it up in my head. I've learned to do that. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this tray as they put it down. And I, I looked at what was on the plate and the surrounding um, things that they bought me. And very quickly, I added up. There was 18 plus teaspoons of sugar on that tray right. that they bought me for breakfast. And I'm thinking, okay, so the World Health Organization is telling us it's something like eight teaspoons of sugar a day for men is the recommendation, something like that. And I'm thinking this is a hospital right. um, that I'm in here and these people are qualified and they're bringing me a breakfast with 18 teaspoons of sugar. It, it just didn't make sense to me, Shana. No, it's mind-boggling, and that would be right about correct. I think a standard hospital um, meal is right around 75 grams of sugar, which would be right around 20 teaspoons. So that you were right on. I mean, <laughs> you calculated in your head very, yeah. very well. Um, but it's crazy, and that's only one meal. So if you're in the hospital for an extended amount of time, and there's so many diabetics in the hospital recovering from whatever they're recovering from or pre-diabetics or heart disease patients. And they're being fed around 225 grams of carbohydrate every day, which, oh man, what would that be about 80? No, 70 teaspoons or so of sugar all day. And that's without snacks. Um, And that's, I know in the psychiatric uh, areas of the high, hospital or mental health, that it's about the same. And that's about one of the worst things you can do for mental health patients is give them ultra-processed carbohydrates and sugar. And it is just so backward. So 
there's, there's so much work to be done. And that is one of the prime areas where we just need things to change is, um, inpatient hospitals. It's like you said, you were there for one day and you know better, but most people, you know, they're there for any extended amount of time and they're just being fed constant carbohydrates and processed foods. And, um, you know, all that the dietitians are looking at are the percentages of carb to protein to fat and making sure people get enough calories, but they're not really looking at the bioavailability of the food and, you know, how it's absorbed and how it's going to affect other disease states. And and then on top of that, when you're in the hospital, usually you're stressed and that will raise your cortisol and blood sugar even more. So yeah, it, it's like you think that you're making some headway and then you take a look around and it's just so many things are, are just really backward. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, if you were there for a few days, oh, mm-hmm. say you're there for a week, well, just the three meals a day would be 100 teaspoons in that week plus whatever else snacks your family bought or you had yourself. But, yeah, I just found it crazy and I, I don't really know how to address it or, you know, how you can sort of talk about it to people, but I, I'm going to mention it to my surgeon when I see him and just say, look, right. you know, I don't know how this can change. I mean, if you don't yeah. talk about it, things never change. People like yourself and, and your book that you mentioned there is called Faster Heal, um, as is your podcast and everything like that. So let's just talk about that for a minute. How did Faster Heal and everything else, and I know you just explained why your book came out, but then yeah. you, you've moved into your own business and and what sort of things do you do in your own business with patients and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so my book is called Fast to Heal, and then the subtitle is A Five-Step Guide to Achieving Nutritional Peace. And the PEACE stands is an acronym, and it's a five-step program. Um, so the book teaches you all about the science behind intermittent fasting and the different ways of fasting and that sort of thing. But then it lays out a five-step approach. Um, and the, the P stands for prepare your body. So in that section, we talk a lot about preparing yourself to have good, better results with your fast. So that's where we talk about, you know, cleaning things up, taking chemicals out, eating non-GMO and organic foods when possible. I know it's not always possible for everybody and the availability is, is different for everyone. But getting the things out that... Um, aren't going to be as beneficial in your feasting window. So that's, that's the prepare part. And then we, the E stands for extend fast. So that's where we, you know, get you started. Oh, and in the prepare part too, we talk a lot about just getting out of the snacking habit, not eating before bed and, and, um, eating fat and protein and some sort of fiber in your eating window so that you can fast well during your fasting time Um, and, and, you know, even if you're not ready to extend fast, at least getting rid of snacks and not eating before bed. And then E is where we talk about extending fast and the different type of fasts. Um, and then A is for ultra nutrition. And that's where we go back and say, okay, what's working with my nutrition? What's not? Um, and I think that's what sets my program and, and the clients that I work with, um, what they really like about my program and my book is that. Some will, some will explain a little bit about nutrition, but 
some really don't give you much guidance. And it's just kind of like, well, eat whatever you want in your eating window. And some people can do that. And, and it's okay, it works okay for them. But some people, you know, if you're really metabolically ill, that just doesn't, it, it can be a slippery slope, and it can, it can be difficult. So I give them more, um, more guidelines for nutrition of what to eat during during the fe- the feasting time, um, and when I work with people personally, we we look at guidelines even more closely. But I always, you know, I, I explain the foods that drive obesity and the foods that prov- provide satiety, and you know, the ones that if you're choosing from the ones that drive obesity, you're going to have a lot harder time fasting than if you're choosing the ones that provide satiety. So that's the ultra nutrition part. And then um, C stands for clean challenge and change. So that's going back, you know, kind of what we were talking about before, making sure you have a clean fast so that you're seeing the progress that you want, changing things up so that you're not doing the same exact fast and, you know, thing every single day and week. And then um, challenge is where, so people who work with me personally or, or I, I do 28 day challenges as well. Um, sometimes I'll have them do like a one or two challenge days, maybe every week or every month, where instead of fasting 18 hours, maybe they do 20 or 24 hours, one day that week, and they just pick one day to see if they can extend their fast and how they feel and if it works for them. So that's the C part. Um, and then E is for ease your mind, which we talk a lot about sleep and stress in that area of the book, because um, a lot of people don't really think that it relates that much to fasting, but it plays a huge role in how uh, much progress you're going to see, how your fasts go. So we, we focus on sleep and stress. Are you getting enough? You know, is your, is your stress level to where you're going to see the progress that you want to see. And those are just lifelong habits and, and um, concepts that you really need to wrap your head around to, to be the healthiest you. So, so that's how my book is written. And that's how um, I run a, a, like I said, I run a 28 day nutritional piece. It's called finding nutritional peace challenge each season. So I have a winter, a spring, a fall and a summer. Um, and I just guide people through that process in the challenge. And it's just nice because you have a, a closed support group. Um, we're just finishing up where, and actually this was the last week of my winter challenge. And, um, I had a, a pretty high amount of people in it and they were just really great, like really great support. And I go, I have a, a live meeting every week. And that we go over each part of the acronym that I just talked about and um, you can ask questions and you're in there with, with your group. So that's, that those have been going very well. And then I also um, offer personalized nutrition virtually. So I've actually worked with people in Australia and the UK and Canada and um, all over the United States. And that's been really fun to just work with people from all over the world. Um, because, you know, in our virtual world, you can, you can do that now. So that's really awesome. Um, and then the last thing, my, 
I just had a workbook um, come out, my workbook that goes along with my book. It's a digital download. It's called, it's called Fast to Heal the Workbook that helps you work through the steps of nutritional peace and helps you, you know, set your goals and um, keep track of your measurements and just think through some things that you might not be thinking through when you're reading the book. It just helps you get them down on paper and work through the process and um, help you be successful, help you maybe identify some roadblocks before you start fasting and, and really your, your good support network who you can rely on if you, you know, cause we're all going to hit some roadblocks when we're going through the process of healing ourselves. Um, and it's just good to have that down on paper ahead of time. So you can look back and say, okay, like this is my plan for this. This is who I can contact. This is a support group that helps me. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the programs that I, I run and, um, see with clients. Oh, that's fantastic. And you have the Facebook group too, don't you? Just a normal one. People can join the Faster Heal Facebook group, Yeah, which I'm a member of too. And, um, I find you very inspiring, Shana, and I think if people are sitting out there and they're struggling, we're going to talk about that now. So for newcomers to fasting, Shana, just run us through some of the strategies they can try if they are struggling to get going with it all. Yeah, so that's that part um, that I talked about with my book. With If, if people are struggling with fasting in general, um, I just really encourage them to stay in that prepare phase as long as they need to. So cleaning up the diet, focusing. So I talk a lot about foods that drive obesity, which are the ultra processed foods and higher carb foods. Um, you know, just getting those out of your diet so that the, you know, like you had, you saw you were a sugar, sugar addict. Once you get those foods out of your diet and you focus on the foods that provide satiety, such as natural fats and whole proteins and intact fibers. Once you start eating those, those, you know, your appetite just starts to correct itself. The satiety starts to correct itself. Um, so that's where I just say, okay, let's just, if you're, if you're not getting the fast down, let's focus on what you're eating first. Clean that up and then just start extending fast slowly and see what kind of progress you see and getting, you know, I think snacking and drinking things that are either sugary or sweet, um, can be so detrimental for, for many people. So we just, we work on those things and then start progressing through the fasts. Um, and then if I have clients who I've seen for several months, or I have a lot of people who actually come into my my challenges or my groups and they're like, you know, I've been fasting for a year and it's just not working. And then, um, what they're struggling with is not the fast, but what to eat during the feast. And they're like, Oh, now, you know, now I know which foods to focus on and I'm seeing some progress. Um, so it's different for everybody, but if I've had people who are fasting for a long time and just not seeing progress, either we look at what they're doing during the feast or we try some sort of different fasting, whether it's alternate day fasting or changing up the times that they're fasting or maybe throwing a challenge day in there. So, so it really just depends on the person. But I find with intermittent fasting, there are just so many different tools and strategies that I, I have yet to find somebody who doesn't see progress, at least in some sort of capacity when they when they um, implement the strategies. 
And it's not all about weight loss, is it, Shana? I mean, there's many, many health benefits and reasons why people can fast. And, and just talk about some of them as well. About apart, apart from weight loss, what else can fasting help with? Right. And I think sometimes we get so fixated on the scale and the number and the weight loss that we don't even notice some of those other uh, really awesome non-scale victories happening until maybe we slip up and we're like, oh, shoot, like that. Like for me, plantar fasciitis, like I just don't struggle with it anymore. Um, so that was huge because there was there was many months and I used to run more than I do now, but there were many months where I could barely step on my foot when I got out of bed. It just there was so much pain and I would limp around <laughs> most of the day and I had to wear special shoes and buy inserts. And now I haven't had pain in my foot for at least a year. Um, and like I said, for me, the bloating just went away when I started intermittent fasting and focusing on cleaner foods and higher fat, higher protein foods. Um, but yeah, I have people like in the workbook, I have people just monitor that and say, okay, what are some of the, the, um, other non-skill victories that you're seeing? And I mean, there's people who, there's a lot of people who actually come into my groups too, where they don't really need to lose weight. And I was one of those people, like I've lost a couple of pounds. Um, but my body composition has really changed. My energy level is better. I sleep better. I don't have the pain in my foot. I don't have ulcers in my mouth that I used to have chronically. Um, and I have, I have several women who are um, like pre-hormone, like premenopausal, where if they make some changes with the intermittent fasting, they can handle going through the menopause years much, much better than if they continued with their, um, their the standard American guidelines. So, yeah, there's just so many benefits. And like I said, I, I have yet to work with a client who is like, okay, I'm not seeing any kind of progress with this and whether or not it's scale related or, or something different. Um, and like I said, sometimes it, it takes a slip or maybe like the holidays where you slip back into old habits and you're like, Oh man, like my shoulder is aching again, or my joints are aching. Um, or, you know, I'm not sleeping as well to really know what all the benefits are until until you slip back <laughs> into old habits. Yeah, I agree. And um, I just wanted to circle back a bit and talk about the eat whatever you want message, which mm -hmm. often in intermittent fasting, I feel that's the most misunderstood part of it all because we often hear people say, I do intermittent fasting because I can eat whatever I want. And me personally, I'm not in that category. Eating whatever I want, Shana, it brought me to this place of obesity and having to recover from it right. in the first place. So <clears throat> I prefer to say I eat whatever makes me feel my greatest. Yes. And I think that's an important message for people that may be contemplating intermittent fasting or are doing it, that there is a vast difference between eating what you want and actually eating what you need to get to your health and wellness goals. And I know there'll be people sitting there saying, well, I eat whatever I want, and I lost 50 pounds, and that's right. great. But the majority of people, that won't work for. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And 
I don't know what it is. 88% of Americans are not metabolically well. It's only 12% that have the, the flexibility to go from fat burning to um, carb to glucose and, you know, sugar and fat burning and, and oscillate between the two very well and very efficiently. It's a, it's a very low percentage. So I kind of look at that as well. That's probably about, about the same number or the same percentage of people who can just eat whatever they want in their window and still do fine with it. But I'm with you. I, and what I tell my clients before you eat anything, if you know, if you're in that place where you still are like, I'm not really sure what to eat in my window, just ask yourself, is it going to move you toward your goal, whatever your health goal is? Um, or is it going to move you away from your goal? Or is it going to be kind of neutral? And then you you decide like, um, you know, is that is that candy bar? Or is that ultra processed cereal going to move you toward your goal? Probably not. Is it going to move you away from your goal? Um, but yeah, I, I just, I think the all foods in moderation approach has gotten us into really big trouble, um, for a lot of people and every, and the the other thing is that moderation is not defined. Well, it's like, well, what does moderation even really mean? Like moderation for one person might be, you know, I can drink two cans of soda every day. And that's moderate for me because usually I drink six cans of soda a day. Well, that's really not going to help you achieve your your health goals. Whereas the next person, maybe moderation is one soda a month and that could work for them. Um, it's just that moderation isn't defined and we, there's really no rules around it. So it's just that mentality can get a lot of people into trouble. But yet you don't want to be so strict and have so many boundaries that you, you can't feel like you're living life. And that's why intermittent fasting just comes full circle for so many people because you start to really learn when you're actually hungry, when you're actually full, and you really just start to crave the, the foods that your body needs to fuel efficiently and to feel good. Um, and, and you really don't see that until you know, at least a month into fasting, if not more, a couple of months and, and depending on how, on how ill you are. Um, but yeah, I just, I think we've done a disservice to the vast majority of people who can't handle everything in moderation. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And I'm one of them. And um, it's like saying a person's an alcoholic and okay, well, how about you just have one beer a day instead of 10? Right. But that person's still going to be an alcoholic and he's still going to have that cravings. And it's like me being a, a fast food addict, which I was, um, three, four times a day through the drive through habit. Um, and I haven't been in a drive through or a fast food place for over three years now. Yeah. And I know that if I, if, if I said to myself, okay, look, you know, I've got the weight off. Hey, I'm going okay. I'm mm-hmm. maintaining. I'm going to go back to that drive through a couple of times a week. I know what that would what would occur. I would start with twice, then it would be four times. Right. Before I know it, it would be six because that habit would come back to me. So what I did was I found an alternative. And my alternative is the fact that I, I lead mostly a one meal a day lifestyle during the week and on the weekends I do a two meal a day maintaining my weight now. Mm-hmm. And so in order for me to meet my health goals and maintain my weight and everything else, 
I've kept those practices that I learned, which were holding me back. And I think if you can learn what your problem is, I mean, let's face it, we know obesity is a disease, right? Right. And a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people that aren't obese, they'll just say, well, eat less, move more. That's that's the rule of thumb. Or they'll say obese people are lazy, um, they got no willpower, um, they have no self-control. And yet, some of the world's most successful and wealthiest people are obese. Right. So do those people have self-control and drive and willpower to get where they are with being so successful? Of course they do. So why don't they have that same self-control and everything around their obesity? Because if people treat obesity as a disease, I think we can stamp off this pandemic, as I call it, a bit easier than what we are. And how do you feel, Shana, when you drive down the street or you go to the supermarket or whatever, knowing what you know, and you see the obesity pandemic in front of you unfolding, how does that make you feel? I mean, obviously, you can only do what you can do, but how does it make you feel inside when you see that? I know. It's it's just, it's beyond frustrating, and it, it just creates a sadness in me because you know you know what's driving the obesity, and you know how to reverse it. And in so many people believe that it's just their genetics or it's just how they are. And they've tried so many things and they just say, oh, well, my parents are obese. I, I'm going to be obese too. And they just, you know, kind of fold into the mentality that that's just how life is. Um, and just knowing as a practitioner what the root cause is, you just want to help everybody. But it, and it's so frustrating to go in anywhere, a convenience store, grocery store, whatever it is, and 80% of the food isn't really food at all. And I just, I, I get so frustrated because foods that most people buy, those are what drive obesity. And they're not even food. It's, it's factory made. It's people think it's food, but it's, it's not really, it's just an addictive substance. Um, that's just going to drive your hunger and, and drive your disease and obesity. Um, so yeah, it, it's really frustrating. I mean, it's empowering to know really what, what is at the root cause and that, I know how to help people at this point, but at the same time, there's just, there's so much work to be done that it's definitely still an uphill battle at this point. Yeah, I know when I go to the supermarket, right, one of the things I learned very early on about supermarkets or what you call the big box stores is shop around the perimeter and Mm -hmm. straight away, you're going to cut down 50% of that sugar content and that sort of thing and the high processed foods are are mainly down those aisles. So I tried to sort of avoid that and stick to the fresh fruit and veg section, dairy section and meat section, which is around the outside. And I found that just by doing that, it was amazing. But with nutrition labels, Shana, I mean, as a nutritionist yourself, it must be so frustrating when you pick up something and you read it and you know straight away all the chemicals and Mm -hmm. you know the hidden names for sugar. And that's what frustrates me because it will say total sugars, right? And then you look on it or it will say 99% sugar-free. And then you look at some of the ingredients 
And as we know, there's like literally over 70 different names for sugar and you see those ingredients. So when you're teaching people and you're coaching people and, and putting them through your courses and so forth, is nutrition label something you discuss or something you teach people about as well? I honestly don't spend a lot of time on nutrition labels because I teach people to look for foods that don't have nutrition labels at all. And those are the whole foods. Um, and I don't know if it's a little bit different in Australia versus the U.S., but, um, you know, whole natural foods, maybe meat, I think, has labels, but your fresh produce and that um, most of the things that I want people to eat don't have labels. So I say, that's what you want to focus on. If it doesn't have a food label, then that's something that you want to eat. And then I give people more of like, okay, there's, there's a section of my book where I say, okay, at every meal that you eat, try to make, you know, there's got to be some sort of natural fat there. And I give them a whole list of things that, that to look for, there should be some sort of, um, natural protein in there that's not made in a factory um organic if possible and then some sort of intact fiber and i'm like if you can pick a food from each of these lists of types of food you're going to do very well i mean there is some education around the food labels but for the most part i just try to teach people to um not eat foods that have labels and a lot of ingredients in them. And then we do, we do try at least to look for the non-GMO labeling and the organic labeling, but even organic, it's like, well, even if it's organic, it can still be ultra processed and, and still not be a great food for you. Um, but it is. And I think in the United States, it's even worse than it is in a lot of European countries in Australia, because we still like food dyes are still allowed. Um, chemicals that I know that have been banned in many European countries are still allowed in the United States. And, um, you know, I try to, to even my kids, it's like, it's, it's hard to teach them. And, you know, they, my kids want to order breadsticks at a meal. I'm like, well, it's kind of, and you, and you don't want to be that dietitian mom who, who's considered crazy and <laughs> doesn't let them eat any kind of processed food. But I'm like, you know, those breadsticks are processed like a sugar and they just look at me like I'm nuts, you know, <laughs> like, no, it's not. It's not sugar. I'm like, well, it's processed like sugar in your body. It's basically the same thing. Um, yeah. So food labeling, I think, I, I think food labels can be a really great resource, but I think they can also be very confusing. And I feel like we just keep adding more and more to the food labels, but it's not really guiding people in the way as if we could just teach them what foods to eat and what how to balance and what foods provide satiety versus what foods drive obesity. Like, I feel like that's a much clearer, more educational message than to sit and nitpick over food labels all day. And like I said, and like you said, if you're in the middle of the grocery store with the ultra processed and packaged foods, those most likely aren't going to help you achieve your goals. It's the stuff, the the foods that are on the outside of the grocery store and the fresh foods that will eventually rot are the ones that you want to (laughs) eat. Yeah, I agree. And um, I just know how much I learned from what I was eating. And now I know what the problem was. I mean, I used to love baked beans, right? So the the brand of baked beans I used to love, I, I learned that that brand had nine teaspoons of sugar in it, made mm-hmm. through the source of the baked beans. So 
okay, so I might only eat baked beans because I want to get to my wellness goal. No. Then I I love tomato sauce. I virtually had tomato sauce on everything. Mm-hmm. And then I learned the high sugar content in that and Coke. When I um, first discovered that there was 10 teaspoons of sugar in a can of Coke, I nearly fainted, I, I, honestly, <laughs> because I never thought about it, right? right. I used to drink five, six cans a day. So I was drinking 50, 60 teaspoons of sugar. Now, if you got a bag of sugar and you got a teaspoon and you you tipped out, you know, 50, 60, I don't know if you've ever seen that, um, that sure. sugar film, okay, where the guy actually eats the sugar content of the soda. He, he gets it and he gets a teaspoon and he eats the actual sugar content. Oh, wow. And that is amazing, that film. Anyone that's an Australian guy called Damien Gunneau, and he went on this six-month thing where he was a perfectly healthy guy. And he went on this, um, you know, all these high sugar foods to see what it does to your mm-hmm. body. And what I found was once I learned what was on those labels and I could eliminate them, everything started to turn for me. Yeah. And I think that if people are obese, they've got to, you've got to take some responsibility and say, okay, I now know what I am doing. So for me, the labels were important. But if that can of Coke, right, had an icon on it or 10 icons of teaspoons and it said this contains 10 teaspoons of sugar would that slow people down from drinking it i reckon it would same as if you were sitting in the drive-thru looking at the at the dollar board and it said frozen cokes this frozen coke contains 28 teaspoons of sugar a lot of people wouldn't drink that but if because it doesn't say that they just see frozen coke wow okay it's hot i'm gonna have a frozen coke so if we can get our food industry, which I severely doubt we ever will, to put those icons of those teaspoons of the sugar content mm-hmm. on there, I think it would make a huge difference to people. And because people simply don't understand just what they what is in food, and I think that's half the problem. And I mean, I know for myself, Shana, we talk about grains and bread. I can virtually drive past a bread truck and I'll put on weight. <laughs> because bread bread is not my friend, yet I love bread right. with all my heart. And bread is something I may have, you know, maybe once a week or twice a week of that. And I used to be a loaf a day a bread guy when I was obese, and I knew that was a big problem for me. But it just doesn't agree with me. So I think that eat whatever you want message really has to be thought out more if you're wanting to make intermittent fasting a sustainable long-term lifestyle. And just before we go, Shana, we're getting near the end of the podcast. I'm just wondering if you could give some people some final words of advice and some encouragement. They're sitting out there and they're obese or they're morbidly obese or they're just fed up with their weight. What can they do? What can you tell them? Yeah. And that's, that's just as a practitioner, like there is hope and you, you hear that and people are like, oh yeah, everybody says there's hope, but there really is. And I feel like we're just on the cusp of kind of turning the corner. Like we've, we've gone through some really dark times with our health from the 1970s up until currently. And now at least we're, we're starting to discover where we went wrong and how to fix it. So I know for me as a practitioner, that's just so encouraging because you can't, you can't help people unless you know how they got sick in the first place. So um, you can't reverse type two diabetes and obesity and um, heart disease unless you know where we went wrong. So, I mean, there are, 
there are practitioners out there. Like you said, there's doctors out there who are starting to embrace intermittent fasting. And I tell all my clients, like, this is a nutrition therapy. This isn't about like starving or depriving or, um, me, like you having to go without food just because you made mistakes. Like this is an actual nutrition therapy that is very, very powerful. It's the most powerful therapy that we have against obesity and metabolic illness. Um, and, and it can work very, very well for you. And once they understand that and they understand, okay, like this is, this is how I undo this disease and how I reverse it. They're usually very receptive and people are, I think they just have this idea around fasting. They're scared of it. Um, so a lot of times I'm like, okay, let's think of it as more of time restricted eating then. If you don't like the idea of fasting and going a really long period of time without eating, you know, think of it as a time restrictive feeding. Um, and then, you know, all of the things that we talked about, whether it's, you know, limiting sugar. And, and I do with almost all my clients, because most of my clients are um, either metabolically ill, or have weight cycled for a really long time, or are obese, like we do limit the carbohydrates. So you were talking about food labels and, um, and, and making sure you're reading all the sugars. And I do have people limit their carbohydrates for a time. And sometimes they're like, oh, like, I don't, I don't know about that. And, and I'm not saying that we go super restrictive, but we do go to a lower carb um, diet. But that is how you reverse the disease. And it's not forever. You know, people, when you're not, you've lost, what, 132 pounds or something crazy like yeah. that? <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. You're not the same person as you were no. before. You're well, the same person, just before. Right. <laughs> Your metabolic health is completely different. And, you know, there's a fine line between saying, okay, well, you're a lot more metabolically healthy than you were now, and you can probably handle some of those ultra processed foods and the sugar and that. But if you go back to what you were doing before, you're going to get sick again. So people start to understand that they can take control and say, okay, like, this is how I got sick. This is how I get well. And if I go back to what I was doing before, I will get sick again. And if, when they understand that and grasp that, they, they, it's just so empowering and they can do very, very well. Yeah, that's great, Shana. Thanks so much for that. But Shana's book's called Fast to Heal. Um, you can get that on Amazon and a couple of other places. Can you, Shana? Yeah, my the paperback is on Amazon and the Kindle version. And then my website is fasttoheal.info. You can get the digital download and the workbook there. Um, and then my my support group is called Fast to Heal Nutrition Support. Yep, you can also get the Audible book um, as well, the audio book uh, on Amazon. Plus, um, Shana, I think you're a shining light for this community. And also you appeared on Jin Stevens' podcast as well, Intermittent Fasting Stories. So if somebody wants to look back and listen to that one as well. But Shana, Hassan, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to have you here with me on the Fasting Highway today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Graham. It's always great to talk with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Shana. That was fantastic. Very insightful and informative. 
I really applaud your courage there in going against mainstream and coming up with your own research into actually what works. And I applaud you in every way. And for those who want to catch up more about Shana, don't forget she is the author of Faster Heal. And get in touch with Shana if you'd like to know more about her Faster Heal Nutritional Peace Program. So coming up next week on the podcast, we've got Dana Marie. Dana's a very inspiring member of the Fasting Highway Facebook group. And Dana's a relative newcomer to intermittent fasting. She's been doing it now for about five to six months. And in that time, her results are truly remarkable, not only in the weight loss, but also in the NSVs, the non-scale victories, and the health benefits that have come her way. So don't miss that one coming up next, Dana Marie. Also, thank you to everybody who's been buying the book about my own journey, The Fasting Highway, and the trials and tribulations I had with uh, fast food and sugar addiction, and finding intermittent fasting and losing 60 kilos and keeping it off now for some two years. If you'd like to read about that journey, you can do so by getting The Fasting Highway on Amazon or go to my website, www.thefastinghighway.com. Anyway, until next week, be well, be safe, and remember, clean fasting is everlasting.